I want to start with uh, what many Americans therefore do with it. Some of you in this room may have grown up Civil War buffs like I did, I confess. There are millions of Civil War tourists. It has this enduring, the military history in particular, the battle history has an enduring eternal hold on our imagination. But this is a first for me. I just got this email, well, a couple weeks ago, from a woman named Nikki Blackburn in Charleston, South Carolina. Has her photograph on it. She's a real estate agent, a pretty real estate agent. And she wanted me to know as a Civil War historian that she and her firm have put a 24-hour webcam on the Calhoun Mansion near Battery Park, on the cupola of the Calhoun Mansion near Battery Park in Lower Charleston, which looks out directly onto Fort Sumter, a mile away, so that you can dial up on the internet and watch Fort Sumter 24 hours a day. Uh, I've experienced a wide variety of bizarre phenomena about the Civil War with reenactors at sites and so on and so on and so on. And when you're on C-SPAN, if you're on C-SPAN enough, believe me, you get every kind of late night crazy American writing to you. But that's a first. 24 hours, webcam, Fort Sumter. I don't know what the hell you're supposed to see. <laughs> Maybe they're ghosts of Confederates that come out at night. And if they have the right kind of night vision, God, I don't know. But she's serious. I'm sorry. All right. In 1863, on the beautiful uh, little hilltop cemetery on the south edge of the town of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, small, sleepy town, large population of German immigrants, a couple sh little shoe factories, a crossroads town, a market town, they had a cemetery in this beautiful setting. And over the archway, or, or as part of the archway into that cemetery that would soon become famous, there was a sign that read, quote, all persons found using firearms on these grounds will be prosecuted within the utmost rigor of the law. Irony makes the world go round, the world go round. Okay, today I want to take up with you at least the beginnings of the question of Confederate defeat and Union victory. We're going to focus in particular on battlefronts. There are numerous reasons, explanations, uh, inter causal interpretations for Confederate defeat and Union victory that have flowed forth in Civil War scholarship for years, and we began to have a new kind of heated argument about it, at least in books 
um, about 10 years ago, in part because of a series of two books by uh, historians named Hathaway and Beringer. They wrote two big tomes. One was entitled, Why the North Won the Civil War, and the other was entitled, Why the South Lost the Civil War. Not very subtle titles. And they were the ones who posited, uh, more than anyone ever had before, in a much more sophisticated way, and I want to come back to that, and it's part of exactly what's at stake in these two wonderful books you're reading, or have read, or are about to read, by Drew Faust and Gary Gallagher, Gallagher's Confederate War and Faust's Mothers of Invention, take up this question of the so-called loss of will. Did the South lose the Civil War because it ultimately lost its will to sustain the fight? There are many sides to that argument, and I'll take it up in a moment. I want to do it. I don't know what's happening to my sound. It's your sound? It's too high. Turn it down. How about that? How's that in the back row? All right, good. Well, anyway, the Civil War, as we've said many times, is the first great photographed event of American history. There are thousands of photographs. We'd have had thousands more if people hadn't destroyed so many of them. And of course, Ken Burns' film series is in part, in great part, reliant on those photographs. And he and his cameraman, of course, they have cameras now, they can take right inside almost these old daguerreotypes uh, and tintypes and, and make them live in ways that uh, they didn't at the time. But that's an image of soldiers at the front smoking a pipe, petting his dog. It's an officer whose wife has come to the front, of course. It's winter quarters near Culpeper Courthouse, Virginia, 1863. They always built these cabins with these chimneys. They built thousands of these with barrels on top. Those were their chimneys. Since I've been discussing this question of mobilization, there are many, many images in the war, from the war, that show this kind of industrial might of the North. There's incredible photographs of of the James River landings in Virginia by 1864, and just as far as the horizon can see, supplies and materiel piled up all over the wharves. This is an image in Virginia of the wagon trains of the Potomac, Army of the Potomac by 1864, thousands of wagons. This is mobilization for total war. And I just for the sake of reality, want to show that also photographers like Matthew Brady and Alexander Gardner and their troops of photographers, it was Gardner in particular who went to Gettysburg after the Battle of Gettysburg and photographed so many of them, so many of the dead. This is a soldier, a, a Union soldier, killed at Gettysburg. It became a kind of macabre fascination especially in the North, where these photographs were often displayed publicly. Brady first started doing it in 62 and early 63, and hence that famous comment by, I believe, uh, uh, George Templeton Strong, who said it was Brady who brought the war into people's homes, into their living rooms, if they went to witness these photographs. 
Now, uh, more on that perhaps at the end, but go back with me now to this question of Union victory, Confederate defeat. We're not going to end the war today. That's next week. And we're going to take the war today through 1863 and major military turning points where you can begin to make an argument from this point forward. From this point forward, it would be very difficult for the Confederacy to win, although not impossible, as we'll see in 1864. Now, on any list, and I'm going to just give you a list out front, and then we'll kind of take up some of them. But on any list of why the North wins and why the South loses, of course, are these elements. One, resources and numbers. Goes without saying, in a, a world of war, that is becoming more industrialized, more modern in its uh, weaponry and its, um, to some extent, its tactics, although that's one of the reasons, of course, casualties in this war were so ghastly because they were fighting with much more modern weapons, repeating rifles, and, of course, the rifled musket that could actually hit something at 800 yards and could be deadly at two to 300 yards. Think of that. Two to three hundred yards, you could hit something and see it. But they were fighting with old tactics, line upon line, shoulder to shoulder, double ranks. If the front of the rank fell, the second rank was supposed to be there, and they were supposed to have loaded their rifles in time to be up front while the other ones went back and reloaded again. And a veteran soldier in this war could load his muzzle loader. Uh, you had to load the mini ball and the cap back here, and then with your ramrod, a, a veteran soldier could do that without pressure about three times a minute. Because under the pressure of battle and being shot at and the cacophony of sound and the terror and fear a soldier went through, sometimes they couldn't perform that. And all over battlefields in this war, they would find dead soldiers sometimes with a rifle they had loaded three and four times. They never fired it. They just kept loading. They'd sort of lose their minds. But in a war that is now fought with such weaponry, and it's going to depend on industrial production, there is an argument that this war was won by the North and the shoe factories of Lowell, Massachusetts, or the gun factories of New Haven, or the gun factories of Springfield, Mass, in the sheer productive capacity, or on those railroads of the North which was so much better, more efficient than the railroads of the South. There's certainly an argument for that. Now, uh, th that handwriting was on the wall from the beginning of the war. Um, in the lovely old book that David Donald did once called Why the North Won, he quotes on the first page of the book a newspaper in Lynchburg, Virginia, summer 1861. Battle of Bull Run hasn't even happened yet. And all this fury for war, the editor of the Lynchburg Virginian wrote, quote, Dependent upon Europe and the North for almost every yard of cloth and every coat and boot and hat that we wear for our axes, scythes, tubs, and buckets, in short, for everything except our bread and meat, it must occur to the South that if our relations with the North are ever severed, we should, they'd already been severed, we should in all the South not be able to clothe ourselves. We could not fill our firesides, plow our fields, nor mow our meadows. In fact, we should be reduced to a state more abject 
than we are willing to look at even prospectively. And yet, all these things staring us in the face, we shut our eyes and we go in blindfold. Man, was that prescient. One of the most remarkable facts about the American Civil War, and James McPherson makes a big deal of this in Battle Cry of Freedom over and over, is that despite their lack of this product, industrial productivity in relation to the North, it is amazing how long the South held out and amazing how close they actually came to winning their version or definition of victory. The North had more banking, more labor capacity, everything. Two, an argument has always been made that the North, in the end, had superior political leadership, i.e., Abraham Lincoln. Now, a lot can be made of this, and a lot has been made of this in book after book, comparing Lincoln with Davis. Um, and there's no question that as an executive, as a leader, as a politician, as a manipulator of people, uh, um, in terms of an acumen, even a genius for politics and organization, Abraham Lincoln is about as good as we've ever had. Jefferson Davis, on the other hand, uh, smart and brilliant man that he was, uh, long military career, long service in the Senate, the War Department, and all else was nevertheless not a very good executive. He always had one foot sort of tied in the state's rights tradition. And that other foot now, really where his soul was by 1862, 63, 64, was in trying to create a nation, a centralized nation state, doing all the things that the state's rights tradition said he should not. He was not, in the end, a great war president, and in part, some have argued, because he would have preferred to be on the battlefield and not in an executive's role. He listened to those generals who were his friends and didn't tend to listen to those who were not. He often made uh, sort of leadership mistakes, such as the time he personally went out west. I'll come to that in a moment during the, just before, the, the great campaign for Chattanooga in late summer and then the fall of 1863 for, for the possession of this terribly important strategic crossroads in southeast Tennessee, the, to the gateway into the deep south, the crossroads of two great southern rivers, crossroads of the two main east-west uh, southern railroads, and so on. He goes out there in the wake of the fall of Chattanooga, when Braxton Bragg's army had, had to retreat south, and he goes to the whole general, there's been terrible dissension in that Confederate army. They all, all the generals wanted Bragg fired, and Davis goes, goes out personally to the camp, gathers all the generals around with Bragg standing there, and asked all the other generals whether they thought they should have a new commander. And to a man, they basically all said yes in front of their commander. And then Davis reappointed him. It was one of the most bizarre decisions of the war. Bragg, Bragg was a disaster. But this is the sort of thing that, and, and Davis and Bragg went back years, and they were old friends, and, and Davis made some strange decisions. But Davis also was handicapped tremendously, politically, by the states' rights tradition, and I would argue one other thing, and it's really a third reason you can put on this long list of why the North's going to win this war, 
the North had an existing political culture. It had an existing political party system. Now we can argue that that political party system was greatly divided, and it was. By 63, you've got what, what are called peace Democrats. The Democratic Party in the North is beginning to argue for a negotiated peace, an end of the war, a divided America, a Confederate States of America, United States of America. And in 1864, they're going to run McClellan on that camp, on that platform. And we'll talk about how pivotal the 64 election was next week. But you had an existing party system that could organize politics, that could organize dissent, that could channel opposition. And it also gave Abraham Lincoln the cudgel or the, 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 the whip of partisanship. He could build enough of a coalition to sustain not only the war effort, but also to pull off some of that remarkable legislation that I started to talk about last time, um, especially economic legislation that really in some ways, for a while at least, transformed uh, the American central government. Fourth, one of the principal reasons the North is going to win this war is that it does ultimately, through some remarkable diplomacy, especially by Charles Francis Adams in London, the U.S. ambassador to Great Britain, grandson of John Adams, son of John Quincy. The fact that in the end, the Union government succeeds in keeping Great Britain ostensibly out of the war, at least militarily, mostly out of the war, is absolutely crucial to Union victory. Had Britain had, had Lee won at Antietam, just, this is what McPherson means and many other historians we're really doing this before Jim was, but, but he's, he's made it his own argument that, that you can't understand Union victory and Confederate defeat without dealing with all kinds of contingencies, moments in the war. If this hadn't happened, then that can't happen. If that doesn't happen, then that can't happen. And so, so you know, putting your eggs in any one basket to explain this, or for that matter anything in history, is a bad idea. But one of those contingencies is, if Lee wins at Antietam, succeeds in moving further into the north, threatens northern cities, and the British government formally recognized the Confederacy and formally sent British troops to fight with the Confederacy, rather than just, in, in a sense, uh, sending them a shadow navy, which was helping the Confederacy and building them ships, could have had a very different outcome to this war. If the United States had had to fight a second front in Canada, against the British. Just imagine the possible outcomes. So, very important factor. Fifth, much has always been made about the, the, the so-called, in the end, superior military leadership of the North, in the end. And we'll deal with this much more next week, a little bit today, when Grant and Sherman and Sheridan and, and, and and General Thomas and a few others actually finally become the principal leaders of this entire ultimately coordinated West and East strategic effort against the South, you can argue, although I think too much is often made of this, you can argue that, that in some ways Grant won the war. And there are books that literally argue that, that want to give Grant in so many ways credit um, for Union victory, and that will argue, and I'll come back to this next week, 
that in some ways as great as Robert E. Lee was as a battlefield commander, as daring and as he was, the risks that he took, uh, the ability he had to somehow see a terrain, to see land, to, to, uh, to see the possibilities of a landscape and how to move huge numbers of men through it, and the way that he could inspire through a, a quite amazing level of charisma his, offi his, his officer staff. There's a lot to the fact that Robert E. Lee himself had a lot to do with sustaining the Confederate war effort as long as it lasted. And Gary Gallagher is going to make a pretty big deal of that in your book, Confederate War. It's just worth remembering that Gallagher's source set, by and large, is the Officer Corps of Lee's Army. Uh, that's a fine book, but you've got to remember what, where his sources are coming from. These are Lee's lieutenants that he's quoting over and over and over, and they became about as loyal to a military commander as anyone has ever been in American history. And then sixth, or whatever number I'm on, and we've dealt with this a good deal already, we'll come back to it later, the policy of emancipation, the transformation of this war into, far beyond its original limited aims, into a war that will become a war of conquest, a war as Lincoln de comes to define it in late 62, and it's absolutely clear in 63, has to be a war to the ultimate aim of the unconditional surrender of the South, which means a war on their resources, on their society, on their transportation systems, and on slavery, their labor system, their greatest source of wealth. and war on their cities, their people. Or as Sherman will say, he wanted to make Georgia howl. All right, now, that's a short list. Now, fold into that, this theory. It's a theory that in the end, you add all this up, resources, political leadership, military leadership, the policy of unconditional surrender, emancipation, keeping Great Britain out of the war, diplomacy, and so on and so on, um, and battlefield victories, as I'll point out in a second, you get this argument for the loss of morale, loss of will. Now, this was fashioned by historians, really, who cut their teeth in the Vietnam era. And they argue that there are plenty of examples throughout history of insurgencies, like the Confederacy, that's what it was, the big one. <laughs> it's not just a little guerrilla army pecking away at, uh, you know, oil lines. But they argued that in many cases in history, and the most obvious one in the 1970s and 80s to Americans was North Vietnam, which held out for a generation, really two generations, against the French Empire and then against the United States of America, the biggest military machine in the world. They lost three and a half million people, and they won. So suddenly through that experience, through those eyes, some American historians began to look back at the Civil War and say, you know what, well, well, wait a minute here. You know, why didn't the Confederacy hold out any longer? Yeah, there were bread riots. There was some starvation. There was a hell of a lot of desertion. But maybe that's telling us something. That in the end, it wasn't just Mars Roberts, Mars Robert and his loyal men. It was 
the civilians behind the war. It was the home front. This is what Drew Faust went to all these women's diaries to try to, try to test. And the argument essentially is that the South didn't have a sufficient degree of nationalism, of an emotional, psychological devotion to a historic nation state that they would do anything to save and preserve in the ways, let's say, that the Germans did to the absolute bitter end against the Russians and the Allies on the Western Front in the Second World War. Berenger and Hathaway loved the example of Paraguay. Now, you know, nobody knows anything about the story of Paraguay and the way it held out against Brazil, <laughs> I think it was, uh, as an early 20th century example. And, and, and there have been other kinds of guerrilla insurgencies over the years. At the bottom of this argument was, why didn't more Confederate forces, rather than surrender, go off and form guerrilla bands? Why didn't the American Civil War end the way so many Civil Wars end, they never quite end? Band of 20 men here and 300 there, going off into the hills, supplying themselves somehow, forming a kind of alternative insurgency that never quite dies. You read a lot of lost cause literature by the late 19th century, and you would almost think that is what happened. But it didn't happen. And Berenger and Hathaway have also argued that, 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 in part, the South, once it begins to lose the war in 63 and 64, that it was Southern Unionist that began to come to the fore, that there were large, and there were, large pockets of Unionism, people who didn't really support the Confederate war effort in Western Virginia, in Western North Carolina, Eastern Tennessee, Upland, Georgia, and those hills that Sherman's army begins to move through and discovers there's some white folk around who want to support him. In fact, Sherman was much kinder to those Georgia whites than he was to those Georgia blacks who tried to gain freedom by coming to his army. More on Sherman's racism next week. Now, in the end, this is an argument that what the South lacked was a deep, mystical, emotional level of nationalism. Well, that's been countered. That's been countered by numerous historians. Uh, Drew Faust is one of them in an earlier book called The Creation of Confederate Nationalism. Uh, she, she's been joined, or she actually joined, a whole group of historians studying this idea. It's been one of the recurring, fascinating questions about the Civil War. And the question is essentially, what kind of nationalism did the Confederacy actually develop? After all, it only lasted four years. I mean, the question really is, was there a Confederate nation? Or were they just a band of states that came together in military defense of homeland? Well, there are arguments on all sides of this. Um, and I'll just, just say a couple things. I, I think those, it's Drew Faust, it's, it's John McArdle, numerous historians. The weight of the best argument, I think, is that the South did indeed, rather quickly, and there's a lot of lessons in this historically, develop a serious level of this mystical kind of nationalism. They developed an ideology that they said their nation was based on. They said right up front, the beginning of the war, Jefferson Davis, speech after speech after speech, he said the Confederacy is the logical vessel of the American Revolution. What the Confederacy really was was the carryover of 1776. 1861 was 1776. 
that George Washington, they will argue, was the founder of the Confederacy. That true American democracy was in this resistance to centralization. They, they created seals and songs and images and heroes and paintings, poetry, all over the place. They used religion, the same kind of millennial Christianity, the same kind of theory of a divine providence that Northerners are praying to and arguing for is the same kind of millennialism the Confederates are going to argue for. They're going to say that they are the chosen nation all over the place among Southern clergy. That argument is put forth, especially early in the war. And then lastly, slavery. It is in some ways almost amazing how much Southerners began to defend slavery and the ways they began to defend slavery during the war and the ways that they began to link it to their nation, the Confederacy, of how the Confederacy was put into this world to perfect slavery, to improve it, to show the world that this slave society, this system, this biracial system where you know, one race is the labor and the other race is the educated, to show the world the possibilities of that. They even developed a whole variety of traveling Confederate minstrel, minstrel groups. Minstrelsy had been primarily a phenomenon of the North. Often the audiences were largely white working class. But during the war, suddenly you had these Confederate troops of minstrels all over the place. And new songs and new poems were, were written that, that were tied now to the sort of fate of the Confederacy. I'll just give you one example. There was one minstrel troupe known as, and these were whites in blackface, keeping morale up. One of them was called Lincoln's Intelligent Contrabands. And one little verse ran, I'd rather work to cotton patch and die on corn and bacon than live up north on good white bread of abolition making. Mm. And it gets worse and it goes on and on. And, and, and the story or the argument of all these Confederate minstrel songs and the poetry they're based on is that black people don't want to be free. They don't want anything to do with this free labor nonsense. They want to stay where they are. Now, I invite you to read Gallagher and Faust on this, and Gallagher's going to make a pretty aggressive argument against the loss of will thesis. He's going to argue that Confederate nationalism ultimately resided in those armies, uh, the armies that stuck it out against almost unbelievable odds. All right. But in 1863, the war had major military turning points. And let me take you through some of that, well, the three major ones, uh, with some dispatch. But these are, I mean, on that short list of, I believe, five major turning points in the Civil War, I mentioned Gettysburg and Vicksburg. Well, kind of add to that if you, want, if you would. The fall of Port Hudson, only a week after Vicksburg out on the Mississippi, and then the ultimate fall, uh, final fall of Chattanooga uh, to Union hands by the fall of 1863. Now, some maps are in order. The Confederacy won a major victory at the Battle of Chancellorsville near uh, 
Sorry? It just slipped off the map. There it is. Just west of Fredericksburg, first week of May, 1863. This was yet again, uh, you'll remember the whole, the previous year, a year before this, McClellan had invaded the peninsula up toward Richmond, the Seven Days Campaign and all the rest, defeated, retreated, Lee then invaded the north. He's going to do exactly the same thing in the summer of 1863. In the wake of what was truly, without a question, a decisive victory at Chancellorsville, Lee held a, a, a council of war in Richmond with Davis and other generals. This time, of course, Stonewall Jackson was not there. He was shot and killed by his own men after the battle at night of Chancellorsville. He lived about a week. That little house where he died and amputated his arm is a shrine today. I, if you want to see some... Civil War weirdness, go to the Stonewall Jackson Shrine. Um, and if you ever saw the movie Gods and, if you ever endured the movie Gods and Generals, all four and a half hours of it, which I did because I had to write a review of it, you know that they took almost a half hour to have Stonewall Jackson die. <laughs> I'm sorry for those of you who are Stonewall Jackson fans. It's just quite remarkable. But at any rate, Lee lost a terribly important commander then. There's no question about it. And it will always leave in Southern lore, you know, what if Jackson had lived? Or what if he'd had Jackson at Gettysburg? What if he'd had Jackson at Cold Harbor, wherever? At any rate, Lee went to Davis and said, let me invade the North again. Davis was a little cautious, because the first time it didn't work. And they almost lost the war a year ago. James Longstreet, now second in command to Lee in the, in the Army of Northern Virginia, had another idea, and Longstreet almost always did. And there's a whole debate in Civil War military history about just whether Longstreet should have been listened to throughout 63. Longstreet's idea was to take uh, at least two divisions, if not an entire corps of infantry, as many as possibly 20,000 men, and move them out west. Because Longstreet worried that the war was being lost in the west, and you know what? He was right on that. But Lee said no. And always in Civil War scholarship, there's been this question, you know, did Lee ultimately lose the war because of his obsession with Virginia, his home state, his homeland, and not allowing Confederate troops to be moved west? Well, they weren't moved west, not at this point in time. All over the war now, even though Lee had won this major victory at Chancellorsville, the Confederacy was potentially hemmed in, potentially. So, Lee's response to this was daring. And had he won at Gettysburg decisively, we wouldn't be, well, I don't know what we'd be debating. <laughs> I'm not sure I want to know what we'd be debating. But Lee did decide to go west, up over into the upper Shenandoah Valley, and invade this time all the way into Pennsylvania, which he did in June 1863. Lincoln's commander of the Army of the Potomac, now seriously defeated was a general named Hooker. Hooker resigned on the 28th of June, 1863, and was replaced by a general named George Gordon Meade only five days, oh, excuse me, only three days before what would become the greatest battle of the war. What Gettysburg became was in some ways an attempt by the Confederate, excuse me, the Union armies, I'll prove that for you, 
It's an effort by the Union armies, blue here, of course, to catch up with Lee's army as it invaded up into Pennsylvania and to stay between Lee's army and Washington, D.C. It's in some ways a replay of what had happened just the year before. Now, they actually ended up meeting at this little town of Gettysburg almost by mistake. They hadn't planned that. Lee wanted to move all of his troops into central Pennsylvania. The whole idea here was to live off the land and the rich farmland of Pennsylvania, to take the war out of ravaged central Virginia, relieve Richmond, uh, and Lee believed tap in to the war weariness of the North and possibly even reinvigorate British intervention. There wasn't a lot of likelihood at that point, but it, you know, he, he hoped, at any rate, that there might be some possibility. It was a great calculated risk. Um, you know, had it worked? Who knows? It did not. They collided near Gettysburg because uh, a group of uh, Confederate infantry were marching toward the town from the west on July 1st, 1863, because they'd heard there were shoes in Gettysburg. And they were confiscating, by the way, everything. Cattle, hogs, food, everything they could take from Pennsylvania farms. And rather than tapping into war weariness in the north, what Lee accomplished was to stimulate resistance in the north. Nothing like an army invading your land, stealing your, your animals, to uh, cause you some consternation. Lee's army also took scores of free blacks living in southern and central Pennsylvania and shuttled them quickly back into the south as slaves. And when this got into the press, uh, it also had an effect on northern morale. The first day at Gettysburg, and I can't go into the kind of detail I'd love to here, and I know some of you would like me to, although I'm going to invite those of you who are military history enthusiasts to an evening session, perhaps next week, perhaps the week after, on a Wednesday if anybody wants. But we can go into more detail on this, and you can open your veins and get a really good shot of military history if you'd like. And if, <laughs> and if you OD, that's your fault. The first day at Gettysburg was a Confederate victory, almost a complete rout. It's actually nighttime that stopped it. The second day at Gettysburg, if you look at this map over here, you'll note that the Union battle line, the Union army barely got there in time by the second day to actually oppose Lee's army. They had marched all day. Some of these Union troops had marched 30 miles in a day just to get there. But the second day at Gettysburg were attacks, massive attacks, on the two ends of the line, the left flank and right flank of the Union armies, which were both very high ground. If any of you have ever, how many of you have been to Gettysburg? You know, Little Round Top and Culp's Hill then. Large hills. Huge battles were fought on those hills on July 2, 1862, uh, with huge numbers of casualties, especially for the Confederates. By the third day, Longstreet urged vehemently that Lee retreat, a strategic retreat, and move south, southward, and then toward Washington and threaten the U.S. Capitol. But to choose other ground to fight on because of the way these hills and ridges were set up in front of them. Longstreet counseled a kind of strategic defensive move 
they are on enemy land, enemy territory. Every day is a total risk here. And they've got a real problem with their supply lines. But Lee said no. His blood was up, and there is evidence all over the dispatches. Lee wanted to win there. He wanted to fight. And as a, I'll come back to this question next week about Lee's own psyche for war and what they said happened to his eyes when, when it was time for battle. So on the third day at Gettysburg, he ordered a concentration at the center, and it became the largest military assault of the war, the largest infantry assault of the Civil War. It's known as Pickett's Charge because it's named for one of the three division commanders uh, who led it, um, George Pickett, who hid behind a barn through the whole damn thing, by the way, while two of his brigade commanders were, were killed, and all of the 13 colonels in his brigade were killed or wounded. But Pickett's charge, a charge of 13,000 men for one hour across a wide open field, slightly rising toward a ridge, lasted about one hour, and almost exactly one half of those 13,000 men were killed or wounded and never got back to the ridge they started from. It was Lee's greatest mistake in the Civil War. He knew it. He rode out in the middle of this field and the thing was over as the men stri were straggling back, those who survived, and he kept going up to them and saying, it's all my fault, it's all my fault, it's all my fault, please help me. He even offered his resignation to Jefferson Davis a couple weeks later, but of course Davis wasn't going to take it. The great significance of Gettysburg is many things. Uh, it's several things. It's the greatest battle of the war in terms of its sheer scale. Casualties were ghastly. 28,000 casualties in three days, that's dead, wounded, and missing on the Confederate side. One-third of all the men engaged were dead or wounded at the end of it. On the Union side, there were 23,000 casualties. That's one of every four. My guy, Charlie Brewster, whose letters I edited, was actually held in reserve. They didn't even get there in time. The 10th Mass was, uh, was brought out to be burial crews. And his letters about, about the fields at Gettysburg are just quite almost unbelievable. There's a particularly poignant letter where he, 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 they always rifled the pockets of the dead. He rifles the pockets of a con dead Confederate soldier. And in his pockets is a letter, a love letter home. And he reads that letter and he quotes from it to his own mother. And then he buries the guy and saved the letter. And this was his job for about three days in a rainstorm burying Union and Confederate dead. It is, Gettysburg, it is the carnage at Gettysburg, the vast number of dead, 56-odd thousand casualties overall, that forced the United States government to create the first national cemetery, which would be created at Gettysburg, and that's, of course, why Lincoln went there the next fall to give the Gettysburg Address. Now, but strategically, it's hugely important. Lee had to retreat as fast as he could. The great problem now for the next week was whether Meade, the Union commander, would follow this up and push like hell in spite of the, uh, the, how badly hurt his army was. 
And Lincoln was sending dispatch after dispatch to Meade, please move, you've got them in your, Lincoln was saying things like, you've got them in your grip, destroy them, the war will be over, the war will be over. And, Lee, and Meade didn't move for three days. And Lee's army escaped on the 13th and 14th of July on a pontoon bridge they hastily managed to build. What was left of Lee's army managed to get across the Potomac River back into Virginia to fight again. Gettysburg's a major Union victory, but it could have been even bigger. Out west, and terribly important, you could argue even more important, were the sieges and the capture of two major places, I guess you'd call them fortresses or ports, along the Mississippi River, Vicksburg and Port Hudson. Vicksburg was laid under siege. Vicksburg had been brought under siege for months by a Union Army commanded by Ulysses Grant. Man, they, they had even at one point tried to alter the course of the Mississippi River with the, with the biggest military engineering scheme the world had ever hatched, and it eh, didn't really work. That's a big river. Don't mess with it. But Finally, Grant was able to put Vicksburg in the spring of 1863 under siege, mostly from the east. And it was especially under complete lockdown siege from May 22nd to the first week of July, in which time the civilian population of Vicksburg that was left and a roughly 30,000 garrison of, of a Confederate army began to starve. The civilians were living in caves because much of their housing was destroyed by artillery bombardment. On June 28th, the Confederate commander, John Pemberton, received a petition from his own troops, signed by lots of them, which said in part, quote, if you cannot feed us, you had better surrender. And so Pemberton sued for, sur did sue, he asked for surrender terms. He met with Grant on the 3rd of July, the same afternoon as Pickett's Charge is happening in the East. They don't know it. And Pemberton surrendered 30,000 Confederate troops in the blink of an eye on July 4th, 1863. Central Mississippi would, within weeks, be abandoned by Confederate forces, and the whole of Central and Northern Mississippi would come under Union control. And that is, by, by the way, folks, the most densely populated slave region anywhere in the South. And it is the escape of slaves now, by the hundreds and then thousands, into Grant's lines that forced his hand in the creation of numerous contraband camps all over northern Mississippi and Tennessee and even down the Mississippi. A few days later, on July 8th, at Port Hudson, down the Mississippi, just north of Baton Rouge, a second fort surrendered. It too had been under siege since May. And when Port Hudson surrendered, the Mississippi River now was completely in Union hands and Union control. On the 16th of July, a merchant steamboat tied up in New Orleans, having successfully traveled from St. Louis all the way down the river, unharassed at all by Confederate guns. And Lincoln famously wrote his uh, memo or telegraph to Grant saying, now the father of waters again goes unvexed to the sea. 
It's terribly important because if you just look at a map, you realize now that by controlling the entire Mississippi River and the region around it, you not only are, are sowing havoc in a southern society, freeing slaves, confiscating land and property, controlling the South's greatest seaports, but you've cut the Confederacy in half. And one of the Confederacy's largest supply lines was through Texas. They were actually being supported to this point in time by the French through Mexico. Well, that was a supply line that never worked terribly well. Now, clock is running out on me. That's okay, because what happens at Chattanooga doesn't happen to long, I think that's the end of 1863, which is a nice place to pick it up next time. But let me leave you with this. Across the South, this was horrible news. And especially when Chattanooga is going to fall in, in the fall, it's even worse news. And these kinds of expressions now came from Southern leaders and privates in the Army and women at home. And here comes your loss of morale thesis. On July 28th, after the fall of Port, Port Hudson and Vicksburg and the debacle the disaster at Gettysburg, the Confederate Chief of Ordnance, Josiah Gorgas, wrote into his diary, quote, events have succeeded one another with disastrous rapidity. One brief month ago, we were apparently at the point of success. Lee was in Pennsylvania threatening Harrisburg, and even Philadelphia. Vicksburg seemed to laugh at all of Grant's efforts to scorn. Now the picture is just as somber as it was bright then. It seems incredible that human power could affect such a change in so brief a space. Yesterday we rode on the pinnacle of success. Today absolute ruin seems to be our portion. The Confederacy totters to its destruction. The war isn't over. And I'll argue next week, the Confederacy still could have won its version of victory in 1864. But those battlefield successes of 63 were handwriting on the wall. <laughs>